I'm Tony Lockwood, founder of Thompson Wright Partners, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the latest episode of Inside Track, where I discuss business transformation journeys with leading figures in industry. Today, I'm joined by Peter Gallagher, an author of five books on change management, an international conference speaker, and a thought leader on change management gamification. An Irishman living in Edinburgh, so expect a longer podcast than usual. He is certainly great value, though, and talks openly about his experience of leading teams through transformation. Let's get right into it, and let me introduce you to Peter now. Well, great, great to meet you, Peter. Thank you very much for agreeing to, uh, to join us today. Um, I seem to remember when we first connected, uh, it was via Twitter, something that you posted on Twitter um, about change management, and, and you, you seem to be pretty prolific on social media and, and posting uh, ideas and, and, and stuff around uh, change management. And I'm sure we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit deeper later. Uh, but before that, can you introduce yourself? Talk, us, talk a little bit about your sort of career to date and how you got into change and transformation. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. Tony, it's good to be on. Um, so my career, probably the last 30 years, I've worked in over 30 countries. I've been involved in aerospace, defense, energy, finance, manufacturing, mining, and pensions. And I've worked for organizations such as Bombardier Aerospace, NCR, Shell, Ernest & Young. I've been both an internal and external consultant. I've been involved in manufacturing, quality, Lean Six Sigma initiatives, operational excellence, ERP implementations, CEO special projects, and major organizational change and transformation. My clients have included Aramco, BP, Boeing, Rolls-Royce, General Electric, and Dow to mention but a few. And when I look back at the projects or programs that were successful, they had a change management or communication component. But the ones that really stood out, the ones that were really successful, those ones had sponsorship, change leadership alignment, and a behavioral change element. And this has always excited and fascinated me, and it's my passion. So as my career's moved on, I've become more into the change spot. And if you find your passion, work no longer feels like work. Absolutely. So back in the UK now, after having worked as a strategic change execution director for EY Advisory Consulting Services for five years in the Middle East. And since I've returned, I've published four books on change management. I've got another five underway with this COVID environment, giving me plenty of time to create new material. I'm an independent consultant and I speak about the leadership of change. I'm also the vice president and board member of the Association of Change Management Practitioners UK. So that's the ACMP UK. Any questions on that? <laughs> well, I'll just take a deep breath because I think you need to take a deep breath after all of that. So you mentioned that you'd obviously operated within both an internal and an external capacity. Which do you prefer? Definitely the internal. Why is that? Um, I worked as an internal consultant for a very large um, energy company and I work globally. Uh, and I think the good thing about working as internal consultant, I think you still need to be trusted and you still need to keep your esteem quite low to engage leaders but within a large organization if you've got a big organization behind you such as we were um organization effectiveness department working globally 
we could challenge the leaders in the organization. You know, we had the mandate. So if I went to an area and I worked all around the world, if I, I could work in um, Oman, Kazakhstan, Canada, you know, the Philippines, wherever I went, I had a mandate. So I could walk up to that leader, get time in his diary and basically say, this is the direction of the organization. And, and, and yeah, give him time, soak that in or her to soak that in. But at the end of the day, you could say, well, you know, Am I going to go back to head office and say that you're not on board <laughs> and then let somebody else take over? And I think that's a benefit. You don't get that as a consultant working for a big four. So I, I miss that. And I think it's it's hard to adjust, you know, because I'm a very direct person. I'm Irish. I'm, I'm direct and I can get away with saying things because of my humor that my wife's English and she said not, not normal people can get away with. <laughs> so that's a real challenge when you're working as an independent consultant and you, you haven't got internal coverage. And, but as one of the big four, uh, you know, I, I've worked in a number of organizations that have used uh, big four uh, almost as, a, as their internal consultancy, it feels like they're, they're, they're constantly in that type of stuff. Um, but one of the, one of the um, advantages that, uh, or the perceived advantages of using some of the big four uh, is that they can ask the direct questions and, and, and really probe without the risk of getting involved in the political ramifications of, of, some, of things like that when you are an internal person. Is that, is that something that you've noticed? No, I, I still think there's a little bit of a barrier when you're, a, when you're an external consultant. As an internal consultant and, and you've got the department behind you and that's your mandate, it's easier to do. Um, I think it's still more difficult, even if a big four, even as a trusted advisor to go in and ask that difficult question and to be more pointed you have to be more diplomatic and take a little bit of time getting around it. So a couple of observations from working around the world and, and working for many years, you know, I've been in business improvement. And when you go in to do an audit in an organization, you always find things are not what they seem. And, and it's very hard to get an organization to accept that. And that's a challenge. I think the other thing is that when I do go into a new organization as a, a big four consultant, I always read the reports their financial reports, and I look for, for words in like risk or change or improvement. And, I, and I, what I find is most leadership teams, there's only two people that really know those reports, and that's the CFO and the CEO, because they have to answer questions to the market or to their boards. So a lot of the other leaders hide away from that. Um, so I still think it's slightly more difficult as an external consultant. It takes a little bit more time. And you have to be a bit more diplomatic. So on, on your on your LinkedIn profile, uh, one of the things that sort of picked up on was uh, the fact that you ask um, a series of questions when you engage with any any new organisation. And uh, the first of these is, do you have a change vision? What's what's the typical answer? So as I said earlier to start, you know, I find the projects that are successful are have sponsorship and they have leadership alignment. So. You know, the first question I like to do when I sit down with that leader of the organization, usually as a sponsor, the question set I like to ask is, or are, do you have a change vision? Are you aligned in your strategic objectives? Are you a high-performing team? And does your team have change leadership skills to lead change or improvement in your organization? And going back to the first one, yeah, they have a vision, you know, but if they're going to have a vision and they're going to go out and articulate it to the employees, it has to roll off their tongue mm. like an elevator speech in 20 words. Now, there's very few leaders, if I ask them to close their laptop, that can articulate that. Very few. And I, I've worked as global procurement and went to many suppliers on high volume, on low volume and high value parts. 
And one of the first things I've always recognized, you can tell how much of a score that organization is going to get by pulling outside security. The way the security guard treats you, you walk through the corridors and you see the strategy up and people can articulate it. So the leader can't articulate that strategy in 20 words, like an elevator speech, then they're not going to engage the employees. They're not going to get that in communication. And I find very few can. The other one is, are you aligned in your objectives? And you know, I was with a recent one in Germany, you know, and the guy got out the spreadsheet. He was head of an organization, very, very good guy, really cared about the, the, the automotive industry and his people and loved his job, spent most of his career in it. And he had all these spreadsheets and on the computer and all people's objectives. There was all the objectives of the organization that came down from the top. And I says, yeah, that's very good, but does everybody know these, you know? And he says, yeah, they all know them, you know, we talk about them. So I said, well, one of the first things I do is, as part of this leadership alignment, I sit down and I interview all those leadership members of that, his team or their team. And I ask them about their priorities. And I'm gonna digress onto this because this is a great story. You know, I ask them to list their, their priorities and sometimes you go in there's 20 and 20 is really too many. You want about Absolutely, 10. Yeah, yeah. And what I do, I, I play horse trading. So I have them on a card and I've done this with a leader first. I put his 20 priorities down. And I play a game with them, you know, which one can you really do without? Which one do you have to do? And we get them ranked. It's a bit like horse trading, but it makes them pick them out. And I had the leaders top 20 and I go into the next guy and I don't show them the results. And I sit there and I say, right, what are your 20 priorities? You know, and I put them all out and I say, Rich, which one's number one? And then I ask them, which one can you do without? And we get a list of one to 20. And then we compare them against all the leaders. And very rarely are they the same. Yeah. In most cases, the leader's number one is somebody else's number 20. So it's, if it's an IT guy, and he's going to have IT as number one. He's not going to have cost anything else. He's going to have IT. If it's a manufacturer, and they're going to have, they're going to have different priorities, you know. Yeah. And it, it's, it's really amazing when you sit down with that team and you look at them, you know, and they're sitting down every day working together and their priorities are not aligned and they haven't got as many. So the, first, the next part of that is to go into a workshop and really align them. And then the high-performing team, you know, I use Lens Coney's um, five behaviors, yeah. you know, starting with trust and conflict. And, you know, you find out if you don't have trust, you don't have conflict, and they're not a high-performing team. And you use their own data on them, you know, you, you get them to score on, on an assessment sheet, and then you show you their data. And, you know, we talked about traffic lights earlier, you know, most of them are in the red or orange, they're <laughs> green. And, you know, they, they all say, well, we all agree on everything, but, you know, you shouldn't agree in every, yeah, you know, exactly. you should have that disagreement. You should have that conflict within the team, polite conflict, you know, it has to be managed conflict. But before you can actually trust and be getting good results, you know, you have to have that, that conflict and that trust and, and work your way through it to, to be a high performing team. So those are the sorts of things I do. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because like you say, if they've, if they've got a team that have got the theoretically the same 20 priorities, but in completely different order, then that that it's it's so important to get to get those differences out and chat and 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 really work through that because unless they're all aligned, they, they are naturally going to conflict and naturally going to compete against each other, aren't they? And moving forward, so it's but all too often I find is that organisations don't really bring that out naturally. They they don't want to open themselves up to that conflict. Um, it's that sort of there's an element of what, what is it the um uh, forming storming norming type so if you've got to go through that storming bit before you can normalize performance and then and then really drive performance but a lot of teams don't want to do that they don't they naturally 
move away from that sort of storming path. Yeah, so, so you know, and I, what, what I have to keep reminding them in, in the following workshops, I, I've run other workshops with them, I put this up in big A0 and I say, this is your data, you know, this mm. is your data, guys, because they're still in denial, some of them. So, you know, and then you work on these, you know, the way through you work on them. So even as I'm working through that leadership alignment process in terms of what their priorities are and bringing these out. And then the other thing I noticed with teams, you know, you talked about if they haven't got the same priorities for just doing normal day-to-day -day business, what are they going to be like when they're implementing a change or a transformation? When resources become scarce, then they're going to hold back their best people. So another thing I find with leadership teams, no matter how good they are at normal day-to-day -day operations, I always say there's a difference between leading normal day-to-day -day operations and change. You know, they're totally different skills, you know, and, yeah. and you need to prepare for that. So I work them through this, you know, and one of the other things I do is I, the last workshop I do them is, a, is to teach them those leadership skills. So I use change management gamification. Right. And all these workshops are closing these, these questions you asked earlier, you know, so I put them into groups of four. I, I'm still trying to close their priorities. I'm work, making them work as a team. And then we go through a, a one-day exercise, usually a one-day simulation, where we're implementing change into a dummy organization, which is a, as a case study. And we've got 12 participants in that case study, and they're all part of an organization, and we're probably implementing a new IT system to make the organization more effective. And, and we play that over a full day, and we play three different phases. We play the plan of the change, the execute of the change, and then the sustain. And, and they have to pick tactics, 10 rounds, they pick tactics in this. And we look at things like change definition, you know, is the change properly defined? And we look at, you know, has the organization got capacity? And I'd like to come back to capacity. Capacity is another great thing. I've worked in organizations and they've wanted to do, and these are massive organizations, world-renowned and, and accepted as being leading practice and, and best in terms of profits, return investment to their shareholders and to work for. And they're trying to do 10 transformations and another organization trying to do 20. You know, how much capacity have you got to do this? You know, you've got normal day-to-day -day operations and you're trying to do 10 transformations. And you've asked a lot of your previous guys on these um, podcasts, what's your definition of a transformation? A transformation is, is a fundamental change to the organization where yeah, you're exactly. changing processes, structure. And to do normal day-to-day -day operations and to do 10 transformations, it's not just going to happen. So... I think going back to the gamification, we teach them about this, you know, is your, is your project defined properly? Is it aligned to the strategy? Is it going to move the organization forward? And then we look at other things like sponsorship. We look at your previous change history, you know, because a lot of organizations have got a bad change history. And then when they implement the next change or transmission, they follow the exact same process. And then we also look at, have you got a change plan, you know, or is it a communication plan? Yeah. Have you got... Uh, the organization ready for the change? Are the employees prepared? Have you taken work off them? How are you going to manage resistance? Because you're going to get resistance. How are you going to develop the new skills and behaviors? You know, what happens in a lot of transformations and change projects, we get to this stage um, where we're introducing the new, the new skills and competencies and behaviors. The training budget's cut. And then we wonder <laughs> whether people haven't got the competency to run it. And then you're trying to do the change adoption and the employees, you know, a lot of organizations, especially if you have 10 or 20 transmissions, they've moved on to the next change. Yeah, exactly. Never yeah. successfully sustained. So we worked through these 10 rounds and we've got the 12 characters and that leadership team and teams of four for each one of those rounds, pick change tactics, and then we give them the results. And as most organizations, not everybody will like those results. You know, people will look at those results in terms of how it impacts me personally, how it impacts my, my department. 
impacts the organization. And we, we, we actually live through that and we play that back. How does that fit with the organization? You, you're making a change down in the shop floor. How is that going to affect your employees? And to me, gamification is a safe learning event. Yeah. It's about experiential learning and it's building that trust and that conflict. So if I see them all agreeing on the same on the same strategy for implementation, then I say, well, guys, you're, you're not really having a proper discussion about this. So we worked that through. I think the main benefit after coming out of that day, they've got ready to use change leadership skills that they can use with their normal day-to-day business yeah. skills. The, the key though is, as you said earlier, is, is for them to be able to take those new skills and that new experience back into the day-to-day activity and deliver a transformation or a change as uh, aligned with the uh, operating the, the day-to-day business as well, uh, business as usual. And how, how do you find that? Is that you know, one day of, of deep dive is great, but you know, on its own, it's probably not going to radically change people's minds. Is it? It's what do you do throughout that sort of um, uh, transformation process to keep them aligned to what the, what they've gone through on that day? Uh, so, so yeah, it's it's not a one stop shop. You know, well, first of all, when I go to use it to leadership teams, let's step back a second. When I first engage them, well, Peter, it's not us; it's the guys below me that need to change. <laughs> So you've got to change that mindset, you know, so I'm very much in the mindset, you know, I talk about a growth and a fixed mindset during a change, yeah. you know, in this fixed mindsets, we've always done it this way, you know, that's one of the things I've got to get rid of at the start. And that's not just down at the, the shop floor level or office level, that's right through the organization. Leaders sitting on that, even on a board will have different motivations for change. So I think you first of all got to make them recognize that you're part of the problem and you need to develop that. And yet, once they come out of that gamification workshop, it's not a one-stop shop. They've got to keep developing that. So I think the consultants working with them, they have to focus on that. I recently worked for Pride Food, an operational improvement consultancy. Ooh. What I really liked about this consultancy, they focus on behaviors. So, you know, I think there's many elements to change, getting the leadership right, getting the employees to adopt the change, but there's also a behavior element. And everybody thinks, or a leader of an organization thinks, well, we're going to tell them that this is the right thing to do and everybody's going to nod. And one of the things I used, I write about it in my books, you know, behavioral change is really difficult. You know, and I say, just because you think it's a good idea, do you think they're going to follow? Yeah, they will. And I says, well, here's something for you. 80% 80% of people that come out of the hospital with open heart surgery revert back to the way they were before. And if they're not going to change their life habits to live, yeah. what chance have you got in work? And, you know, you've guessed even, I've even got guys putting on it. Yeah, that was me. So to make people change their behaviors, you, you have to work with them. So what a lot of hospitals find is you have to go home to the patient's house. You have to go into their fridge, give them a diet, give them a new way of getting um, exercise. And, and once you do that little bit of coaching and come back and do the check, you get that, that change which you're talking about. And I think we, we, we see this in, in, day in, in life. We see it out in the street, we see it in hotels and it's called choice architecture. Mm-hmm. So it's that little nudge. So you go into an hotel and you, you get a little card sitting in the bed and it says 90% of all the people using this hotel reuse their towels. You see it on the roads walking around. You see green footpaths walking you to the recyclable rubbish. You see it and when you join an organization, instead of giving you the chance to opt out of the pension or opt into it, they send you a little email and you have to opt deliberately opt out of it. Yeah. You see this in the canteen when you go to buy your food. They put 
all the healthy food beside the till in this big bright laid up cabinet and all the unhealthy food at the far end. So these little nudges you've got to do in behavioral change. And I think leaders implementing change have got to help that. But you've also got to have the leaders reinforcing the change, you know, intervening. Yeah. You know, it's not just let's roll this change out and let's hope it's going to stick because it won't. So if, if I'm working with leaders, I ask them to do three things. It's, it's not it's three simple things, but it's continuous the way through it. So during the plan phase, they've got to articulate that vision for change. So back to the vision again, what yeah. is it? Will, will people get on board? You know, will it inspire them? Then through the execute, you know, how are you going to model those new behaviors and, and skills, you know, because if you don't follow them, people look at their boss and they say, well, if it's not interesting to me, boss, it's not, it's not any good for me. Yeah. So you've got to model those the whole way through. You've got to spend time with people, engage, communicate, and then the sustain. And that's probably the hardest, you know, when new behaviors and, and skills are there and the new change comes along, you've got to intervene when people fall back to the old way. And that's so important. So it's not just come out of that gamification workshop and do that. You need coaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we all need coaching throughout our lives. No, I think, like you say, it's, it is so important that um, you think beyond what the the end point of any transformation is it's not the the program itself might close down or the program team might close down but the embedding process of that change that you've just gone through continues and it has to continue often for 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 many months and even years to 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 as you said to really embed that behavioral change because that those behaviors have been built up over many years you can't change them in a, in a series of days or weeks. It's a continual improvement, isn't it? It's continual reinforcement. You've got to change the way that people are doing what they do on a day-to-day -day basis, the way they're thinking. And that, that's sometimes making sure that KPIs are adapted. I've found many times where you, you, you put a change in, you're expecting people to, to, to deliver things in a completely different way. But the measurements that they're awarded rewarded again should I say haven't changed so what happens you don't get the change that you're looking for it's all those interdependent elements that you've got to get in in, in, in the right place yeah I think I think aligning the change to the balanced scorecard yeah. you know so again go back to step one has the change been properly defined you know is it going to move the dial is it going to deliver the strategy you know and again I go back to capacity you've only so many change you can put into the organization. So what is it? Does it move the dial? And, and how should that be measured going forward? So when you do get to the end, you know, how is that measured in the balanced scorecard in terms of those four critical measures? And then I think the other second thing is, does it link to the individual's performance scorecard? And unless it does, it's very difficult to get that change. And, you know, we're not just living with COVID. We're in the middle of the fourth industrial revolution. You know, change is going to hit us like never before. It's going to impact our family lives, our work lives, our social lives. You know, we've had a massive IT transformation in the last six months for which organizations have been trying to do for the last 10, yeah, 15 absolutely. years. So yeah, I think change is going to be here constantly. And as change professionals, you know, an organization's capability to transform or change is going to be the difference between it surviving. So I think as a as all professionals within change and transformation, we really have to build that capability and support the leaders to do that. And, and do you think the um, leaders understand that and understand the value that uh, people like you bring at this moment in time? 
Yeah, so we, we talked earlier, you know, so, so, so I think, I think there's, I put people into three classifications in change, you know, there's the, the advocates who support me, there's the observers that, you know, maybe had a bad experience with change before, it's been traumatic, and they're going to take a real bit of movement to move over there to become supporters of the change or the advocates. And then you've got the rebels, you know, and what does rebel stand for? reject every business investment <laughs> legitimately you know and, and i love these guys because they, they take more time and they're always there and when i walk into their area you know they don't come and greet me i can see them they hide they move away from me you know and, and i can see them looking into my eyes you know they say peter i'll still be here you know i've seen many peters come and go and i think that's the same with leaders you yeah. know some leaders not them all some are really great really advocates of change they understand the, the importance of the organizations they understand that we have to keep changing and transforming the world is changing customer preferences is changing you know there's a burning platform you know out there. i don't think we need it anymore it's there yeah. um and these guys have to move forward so you know the leaders are the same so some i think at some point yeah there's three strikes and you're out, but you have to talk to them, engage them, because there might be a genuine reason why, why people reject change. And in some cases, if you get a lot of employees rejecting the change, maybe it's not the right change for the organization. I always get that taken up. And yes, that could be the case. But in a lot of the cases, people have personal problems with change and, and they don't want to change, you know, and, and everybody's got everybody's got their own little life at home. I don't know how they've been damaged by change before, you know. I, I, but I, I think there's, um, there are, as you say, there are lead, really good leaders, very transformational leaders, but transformational focus leaders out there. And equally, there's others that are leading organisations that are today's blockbusters. You know, they, they, they are organisations that are quite successful at the moment, but just don't realise, or maybe realise that something's coming that will completely change their business model um, and if they don't adapt they've gone like blockbusters did with when, when netflix and the like came around um but the sheer size of the challenge to change that organization into something that needed to is is just too big for them to to get their head around or to even just contemplate and um i, I think that's where the the real opportunity is i suppose for people like you and i to go in and, and start to identify those types of organizations and go and engage in with the uh, the leaders now. Yeah, so my favorite quote in this, and, and I do speak in events around the world and I, I work with lots of leaders. And one of my first quotes to them is, you know, nothing negatively impacts organization performance quicker than an employee who resists change and he believes the way we work today is the way we work tomorrow. You know, we can't have people in organizations thinking like that. And that can't be a leader. It can't be anybody in the organization at any level because they'll stop it, you know. So if you're going to roll change through an organization, I talk about like, look at a, a water fountain. You've got the water coming from the bottom and pumped to the top and it goes in each plate goes over the level and falls the next. And that's the way you need the organization to be if you're, if you're doing change. That communication, that vision, that leadership message has to go the whole way from the top to the bottom. And if you have resistance, if you have those rebels, yeah, you've, you've got to engage them and talk to them and try and turn them. But eventually at some point, if they're holding the organization back then for the greater good, in some cases, it's very unfortunate. And I always see it as a personal failure, but sometimes it doesn't work. And, and actually, in, in retrospect, when I think when, when I've had experience of those people, by encouraging them to leave, um, you're doing the best thing for them as well. 
and and there's been lots of times where we've gone through that process with people. You know, where where the organisation is going to go next is not where they want to be. So you know, they choose through after discussion to to leave. We keep in touch with them, and it's the best that when you look back six months later, they'll come back and say it's the best thing that ever happened to me because I wasn't enjoying life doing what I was doing. I didn't want to go and do what they wanted me to do. Leaving and going into something new has given me a new lease of life. So a lot of the times it's the best thing for the individual as well as the organisation. Yeah, very true. And, and I think, you know, I've worked on on onboarding and, and so I worked on a transformation in a large energy organisation. We looked at five employee life cycle processes First of all, it was onboarding when the oil price was going high and then the oil price drops and then it's offboarding. And I worked with a really good mentor and he says, Peter, you know, people are having to leave the organization through change or through redundancy, you know, because we're cost cutting or changing the way the organization operates. But, you know, that person should leave the organization and you should see them as an ambassador, you know, so we should make that experience as pleasant and possible, yeah. as pleasant as possible for that person, because that person's now going to pull up and buy petrol and they're going to talk about that. So that, that was a very good lesson. So we done the offboarding process with a very human touch. It's an unpleasant experience, you know, make it as pleasant as possible. And, you know, in some cases it might be cost cut and in other cases, some people might not have the skills or the organization might do away the department. So I, I think, if you don't respect people, if you don't put people first, you shouldn't be in change, first of all. <laughs> you, have to, you have to treat people with respect, but you've got to be aware that not everybody's going to make it, but make that a nice human experience. And again, I go back to leadership. That's about leadership, putting that in, 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 the, in the front of their vision. You know, we're going to look after people. You know, when I first got involved in Lean Six Sigma, you know, the organization made a commitment to the employees. We're going to make improvements. We're going to make efficiency improvements, but nobody will go out the door. And I think you've got to make that commitment at the start. You know, when I talk about change adoption, one of the first steps in that is making the employees aware. Yeah. So I think you've got to let them quickly know that there's going to be changes to the organization. Your job's safe or not safe, or it could change. But you've got to get that in before the rumors start, yeah. before the resistance builds. And um, I think that's up to leadership. And you know, I've came full circle. I used to try to learn the tools, then I learned sponsorship, but that's why I focus so much on leadership. The leadership have to lead the change, you know. So for me, it's, let me digress a second and then I'll come back to my main point. You know, I used to think when I was leading a project or leading a, a change or a, a Six Sigma initiative that, that if I was smart and I had good project management skills, used all the tools properly and worked hard and, and coerced people into doing things that would work. Well, to me, I've now moved back. It's, it's every project's a four-legged stool. So the first leg's me, and the second leg's a team. You've got to have a very good team behind you. And the third leg's the stakeholders, and the fourth leg's is a leadership team yeah. and a sponsor. And if I don't have the leadership team with me, then just take away that leg. So I'm now on three legs, and you think, well, it's not going to rock. But if you've got other initiatives, you've got other priorities in the organization, like normal day-to-day -day business, how long are those stakeholders going to engage you of the leadership and the sponsor Absolutely. aren't there? Yeah. So if I look back to my quality days when I was involved in quality, as I said, in operations, one of the first quotes I, I seen was from Joseph Duran. And this is many years ago. And one of his quotes was, observing many organizations in action, I'm unable to point to a single instance when stunning results were gotten without active and personal leadership 
of the organization, you know, and, and that's where I am. So that's why I start this leadership alignment. That's why I spend so much time with them and, and we've got to support them. Yeah, no, totally agree. Totally agree. So um, change is, as, as we've said, um, stressful all the way through, really, for, for many people, whether that's the leaders, whether it's the, 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 the team, whether it's the stakeholders, whether it's the people that are driving the change in the project team. What do you do to alleviate your your stress or, or are you one of these fortunate people that don't really feel it? So, so I, I don't really feel stress. No, I don't. Um, I think if, if I think of a stressful time in a project, it's when I can't get the sponsor and, and that builds up in me because I take it personally. Um, if I can't get the right access to a sponsor, but no, I'm not usually a stressful person. I usually work at a project. Maybe I've been lucky, but how do I relax? Well, I'm Irish, I'm living in Edinburgh, it's a beautiful city. So for me, the perfect day is, if it's a sunny day, is to cycle out to Musselburgh. And there's a lovely Italian restaurant there so I can sit out in the sun on a Saturday afternoon. So you mentioned at the start that you're, you're in the middle of writing some additional books. What, what, do, you, do you wanna sort of just give us a sneak preview into what you're covering up in there? Yeah, so when I come back to the Middle East, I wrote three books. Um, so first, I, I call them the leadership of change, um, and each one's got a volume number. So the first one is volume one. So it's it's ten fables on change management built around that framework I talked about. So I talk about an organisation's trying to do twenty or ten transformations right through to you know sustaining the change. The next one's a small pocket guide. So it talks. It's like really a change management pocket guide with over 30 concepts that you can put in your back pocket and take down to the shop floor and talk about change. The next one's a handbook, much more detailed. So it's over 300 pages, over 50 concepts, a deep a glossary, many illustrations and assessments to help you through the change. So that was, if you like, my methodologies, my frameworks. And then I love gamification. You know, I've used gamification for, for, for general learning. For part of lean operational excellence, it's a great way to learn because of this experiential learning. So I've done my first little workshop manual. So it's volume A and it's called Leadership of Change, volume A, Change Management Gamification for Leadership. So if you had to boil your experience down into one core takeaway today, what would that be? So I think it's leadership alignment. You know, and I mentioned the importance of, you know, the four-legged stool. You know, if you don't have that leadership or sponsorship, and I'm not saying for one second that a communication or employee engagement is not important. It's extremely important. But I'm now gone full cycle to where I started my career in quality, and it's, it's leadership. If you don't have them involved, you're, you're not going to get there. So it's that doing that change history assessment with them. It's doing the one-to-one -one interviews. It's what are your strategic priorities? Are you a high-performing team, and do you have leadership skills? You know, that's where I really focus. Um, communication, yeah, you can't ignore it. You know, I've got a favorite quote in communication. So, communication, effective change communication is the hardest successful change. It acts like the blood in our bodies, but instead of supplying vital oxygen and nutrients, communication supplies information and motivation to impact its stakeholders. So. I can't ignore those things, but my choice is leadership. And if you look at some of the projects I've been on, one of the most challenges projects I've been on is health and safety. Um, I was working for an energy organization and every year we were killing over a hundred people because people weren't following rules. They were 
were out doing their work. And we tried everything. We tried to educate it. We ran it as a transformation program. Everybody in the organization had to go and do all these health and safety courses. In each meeting, we had to have a HSE brief. If you went into on a car journey, you had to plan your journey. And it was around behaviors. If you were walking up a staircase, you had to hold a handrail, many things like that. And it didn't work. We had over 100 deaths for a few years. It was getting out into the press and it was stopping us winning new work in organizations and, and countries because they, nobody wants to touch an organization that's killing people. And these were employees and contractors. And we introduced um, 12 lifesaver rules. And it's all about behavioral change. Now, when you're implementing a change, it can either be a tell or a sell. The sell is winning the hearts and minds. The lifesaver rules was introduced as a tell. Yeah. And if you fail to follow these rules when you were doing maintenance, so if you went to do um, maintenance on a site, you had to have a permit to work. It had to be signed off and things like that. And we implemented these. And, and the rule was, you know, if you don't follow these rules, guys, and we talked about this earlier, you choose to leave the organization. Yeah, yeah. And I think within a year, we got the deaths below 10, still 10 is too, too high, but it, it really worked. So that's why behavioral change is so important. And I go back to the guy coming out of the hospital after open heart surgery. If you think he's not going to change and it's a matter of life and death, you really have to think about how you make people change in organizations when it's not really impacting them that much. No, absolutely. And, and I think that's a perfect place to, uh, to, to, to come to a conclusion. Um, thank you very much, Peter. That was really thank good. Thank you very much, Tony. Well, that's enough of the smooth Irish tones from Peter. Once again, thanks a lot, Peter. You'll find links to Peter's books in the show notes below. Like anything in life, feedback is essential. So please do let me know what you think about these podcasts. I'm particularly interested to hear about specific areas that you'd like us to cover in future episodes. The next podcast in a couple of weeks time looks at transformation from a slightly different perspective. And I'm delighted to be joined by Stephen Baker, MBE. His is a fascinating story that I'm sure you'll get plenty from. So look out for that in a couple of weeks. Bye for now.